Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today here with Tamara Stewart, who is a pain director, a pain policy advocate, a pain patient advocate, and perhaps above all, a pain patient. She has been instrumental in many of the latest legislation to become law in the state of Oklahoma and has authored or advocated for many of the new legislation that are coming in the pipeline in the Oklahoma legislation. And so with that, I'd like to welcome Tamara. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. So before we begin, can you let the audience know a little bit more about you, your background, and what led you to be the advocate that you are? I was essentially a stay-at-home mom. After college, I kind of decided I wasn't planning on using my degree, which was in um, accounting, international business, and French, of all things. I didn't plan on using that, so I stayed at home, helped my husband build a home business, um, raised my kids, brought in foster children off and on, and 2009 had cancer. That was kind of the start of my official pain management career. Um, then kind of just went on with our lives. It was got over the, you know, got into remission from cancer and went on, uh, was on pain management all those years at a stable dose, kind of just one little tiny part of my life. It definitely wasn't a major part, just a monthly appointment. Then had another cancer in 2007, 16 and 17, and moved back to Oklahoma, went into my doctor's office April of 2018, and they said, well, guess what? The laws are changing, so you can't have this same dose anymore. Wow. And I looked at him and I was like, why? What did I do? That was my first question. What did I do? Because I had nothing had changed. I hadn't even increased my dose with my most recent cancer, which was two years of ups and downs, fighting and multiple surgeries. So I couldn't figure out why. And they reduced my dose every month, starting in April of 18. About August, I got really pissed because there was I was losing the ability to take care of my kids and function and be a part of my own life. So I got up and I walked into a medical board meeting and I literally asked, what is going on? Why did this happen? They said, oh, it wasn't us. It was the state legislature and the Bureau of Narcotics. So the next week I went to a Bureau of Narcotics meeting and I said, what the hell? <laughs> Well, I was losing everything I had because of this. And they said, oh, it wasn't meant for patients like you. It wasn't, it, there was just confusion because of the way the legislature wrote it. I said, okay. So I showed up at the state capitol and I went up and down those halls wanting somebody to tell me why I had to give up everything in my life just because somebody was misinterpreting or not understanding things. It made no sense to me. So I wanted somebody to explain it. Wow, you explained so much in such a calm manner. 
I feel almost compelled to have to go back and break it down piece by piece. <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing story. And I think that it's worth dissecting. So talk about the going to the medical board meeting. How did you introduce yourself to them? And what did you even say to make your appearance known? I sat there very quietly and respectfully through the entire meeting because at the very end it had an option, an opportunity for public comments. And mind the, you, this is the state medical licensing board yes, for the audience. This is the state licensure board. You just showed up. I just showed up. They are all wow. open. I think if I'm not mistaken, every state has to have these open, whether it's by video or by um, allowing patients and the public into the building during the meetings. And there was an opportunity to speak. They saw me sitting there and they just asked, what can we do for you? Is there something you were needing, a reason you were here? I said, actually there is. And I stood up and I wanted to know what was going on. Wow, that's so amazing. You go to the state medical licensing board, you go to the state capitol. It's almost as though the initiative to put yourself in front of the decision makers was half the battle of advocacy. I really think that is, I didn't think about it at the time. It was just self-preservation. It was, I was not able to take care of my foster kids and my biological daughter. That was, you know, the only thing going through my mind. How can I do all this suffering from bed? And I was already active in other advocacy. So it wasn't that I was completely new to this process, but I definitely never just barged in a public meeting for any other reasons. I had just sent letters and done kind of the, the typical stuff where you make phone calls and send letters, say, hey, this is how I'm impacted by what you're doing. But I noticed that wasn't doing any good because I was already involved in a little bit of the pain community by then and nothing was changing. So I decided to go a little further. Wow, it's amazing how you have been incredibly effective. And the state of Oklahoma is in many ways leading the nation in opioid legislation reform, both at the legislative level and at the judicial level. How much of an impact does your story have on others who see you, who are emboldened by the moves that you have made that have together led to such effective advocacy? Well, I hope it emboldens others to a lot of others to do that. I know anytime somebody's reached out to me, I've tried to help them figure out exactly where to start. Um, I get a little overwhelmed sometimes and miss people and always feel guilty that I overlooked someone or didn't get back. But I do try to get to anybody who asks, what can I do to do that in my state? And that's actually why the P3 Alliance was born, because we wanted to try to reach out and set up more of a formal process to help in other states. Tell us a little bit about the P3 Alliance. And again, the website for that is painadvocate.org, no punctuation or space, P-A-I-N-A-D-V-O-C-A-T-E.org. Tamara, tell us a little bit about the Pain Alliance and what it can do for advocates across the country. Essentially, we, I started that website before the um, actual alliance was born, 
it was mostly just to start giving everybody the tools they needed to walk into their legislator's office and say, this is not working. Here's why. Here's the proof that this wasn't the problem. This isn't going to make it better. And what we need to fix. And it, it just kind of kept rolling from there. You talk about proof that this wasn't the problem. For the listening audience who may not be uh, aware of some of the misinformation that was perpetuated by some of the policymakers in past years, can you talk about what proof is and what this quote unquote proof resonates most strongly with the legislators? The ones that have been the most beneficial to us was when the CDC claimed that this was never how it was supposed to be made. There is a line in there, April of 2019, mea culpa, if you will, that says state legislatures were never supposed to enact policy to deny prescription meds or limit prescription meds based on the 2016 guidelines. So I would bring that highlighted, that one part blown up and highlighted and sit it there on their desk and say, this was not supposed to happen. Here's where the CDC says this never should have happened. So that was one of the main articles of proof. Uh, Chad Colas recently has put out some that have just been phenomenal, that have broke down everything from how prop had such a large impact and never should have. And most of the state legislators that knew anything about the opioid le legislations in their state, you know, not the ones that just voted on it, but the ones who wrote it and interacted with this, they knew someone from Prop or Shatterproof. So being mm. able to take Chad Collis's documents in there and say, this is the people you listen to, and here's why that's a problem. Here's the CDC saying, this never should have happened. And breaking it down to them so calmly, so respectfully, don't get me wrong, I want to yell at some of them sometimes, but it takes all I've got to stand there very respectfully and just keep explaining it to them point by point. I would say that your composure is one of the testaments to your strengths and to your effective advocacy. Where did you develop that poise? Uh, does it come naturally to you or did you have to learn it through a series of experiences? Probably some of both. I've been, the first time I was really in pain to the point I couldn't stand it any longer. I was three years old and I told my mom, I wish Jesus would take me home so that I no longer <laughs> had to feel this pain. Of course, I don't remember it, but there were multiple people around. And so I guess I've just had to go through my whole life pretending everything was okay or that at least I was able to function because I did finish high school and college. And so I guess I just kept going. That's all I could do. And I wanted to bring in foster kids. I wanted to help as many as I could. So just the combination of my own life experiences and being in pain 24 seven my whole life has pretty much created this. And I think it shows and how effective you have been as an advocate, that desire or spirit to want to help and serve. And I think it has led to probably what is the pinnacle of your advocacy, which is SB 57, Senate Bill 57. 
Can you tell us a little bit about this bill that is now law and your role in ensuring that was signed into law? Sure. So the year before that, well, not year. So in 2019, there was another bill that they let us kind of start having input in and working on. We got to change a few subsections and got to have a little bit of input. And because of that, we were slated to be able to do something in 2020. Everybody knows the pandemic kind of messed that all up for everybody, for us being able to change things in law. So come 2021, they all really knew who I was. By that point, there wasn't a single state legislator in Oklahoma that did not know me by either name or num name or face. Wow. And same with a lot of the lobbyists, a lot of the medical boards, pretty much all of them knew who I was because I show up to pretty much anything I can. If I'm physically able that day, I'm there. So they knew who I was and they, but they started listening because of that. They knew I had the right information that I could show the entire thing because I really was at each part of it for years. So they started asking our opinion, my opinion, and then I brought in others to help that have been completely instrumental in working on the legal language itself. Now, mind you, you don't have any formal legal training. All the legal understanding you have come through your lived experiences. Is that correct? Absolutely. I had no legal experience at all. This was just reading and learning and doing. So let's frame this in a broad sense for the audience. Tell us, one, what SB 57 did for pain patients, and then talk to us through the process. You mentioned it so casually, yet it's so impressive. You were actually drafting content in the law with the legislators. So if you could maybe break this down into two parts, telling us about the bill and telling us about your role in actually drafting the bill, that would give us a good sense of just how influential you were in this whole process. Okay, so at the beginning of 2021, we had written a bill that my state representative, John Talley, um, had filed for us. It didn't go anywhere because the uh, committee just wasn't ready to hear it. Essentially, they said, well, we're really not sure how this is going to go. So that one kind of went by the wayside, but it was also still sitting there because we have what's called a two-year session. So we could have pulled it back up. It wasn't totally dead, but it was pretty much stalled. But there was another bill, which is Senate Bill 57, that another rep or another senator had been working on. And I had met with that senator dozens of times over the last few years. I think he ducks when he sees me now, but he does <laughs> know who I am. And Senator Rader and I sat and had coffee and we talked about it. And we decided we really did need to roll back some of the problems. And what he told me was the most important part was that I brought in specific solutions, such mm -hmm. as we looked at, there was a place in Senate bill, in the original law, where it insinuated our doctors had to use the PDMP and its scores for determination in of our, whether they prescribed it all, whether they took us as new patients, 
instead of that just being one small part of their determination or their screening process. And a lot of physicians and doctors, prescribers, felt like because of the wording, they had to look at it and say, well, your PDMP score is too high. We cannot do anything. Because of that, that was the first change we made. We also added information, added something so that patients can see our own PDMP uh, records. In Oklahoma, we had no access to it. If there was a mistake or an error somewhere, we had no idea why we would have been de denied treatment. We were just told we were denied treatment, period. Now we have access. That was one of the main focuses of Senate Bill 57. And throughout the session, after little bits at a time had been changed, so like I said, we changed how the PDMP was used and then changed allowing the, visit, the patient to have access to their own records. Then we started looking at the way the palliative care and cancer exemptions were written. Something we noticed is the way it had it in there, there was not a comma between hospice or palliative care. So when they did that, it made it sound like it had to be a licensed hospice who performed a palliative care or authorized certified palliative care and treated a patient. So by putting a comma in between the words hospice and palliative care, it actually separated it to a point that palliative care can go back to be the care doctor, the pain doctor, whatever physician is comfortable making that determination, which is where it always should have been. So honestly, that little comma is probably our biggest win overall in Oklahoma, as crazy as that sounds. One little comma makes all the difference to how it's interpreted. Well, let that be a lesson for everybody who thinks grammar is not important. No kidding. And then there was just one more section and we were able to take the bill we wrote at the beginning of the year that just kind of went to hold and we put that entire section as a new subsection at the end of that part of law. And it didn't necessarily change anything, but it very clearly said, nothing in this law requires the practitioner to limit or taper a patient. Mm -hmm. And it says the standard of care requires effective and individualized treatment. And that that is deemed as appropriate by the prescribing practitioner without codified limits on dose or quantity, without the administrative limits, that it had to be based on the prescribing practitioner's decision of what is medically appropriate for each patient. Understood. That whole concept of individualized care is inherent to clinical medicine, yet for some reason we lost it in the opiate epidemic. And it's thanks to people like you that were bringing it back. Clearly there must've been some resistance that you faced throughout this whole process. Can you talk about how you approached the resistance, how you overcame the resistance? Well, most of the resistance was by people who still believed we had doctors out there just prescribing like candy and that there was 
just that the overprescribing and the pill mills were definitely more rampant or common than anything else. When we were able to show them that there really wasn't any of that as rampant or you know, common as they thought, that helped a lot. But also we had the floor leader, uh, Representative Eccles here in Oklahoma, and he already knew all of this was BS, to be honest. He called the mayor, you know, he called the governor in 2018 and said, you guys should not do this. We should not be putting limits and writing this law, the original one from 18. So he already knew this was not right. Wow. So he was really very instrumental also in pushing the rest of his party and the rest of the House of Representatives in that. On the Senate side, my senator and Senator Rader and some of the others, they had been hearing from me and others for so long. Since 2018, patients in Oklahoma had been blowing up their phone lines and emails and anything they could. And that helped a lot. So when we presented them with a solution, I think that's the biggest thing I tell people. Instead of just telling them something's wrong, present them with a solution. When I explain to them this comma matter or that these words matter, they were all pretty well okay with that. There's, they feel helpless. They may know something's wrong. They're hearing from every constituent something's wrong. But until they know what to do, since they're not doctors and they don't understand how it gets interpreted in the medical terms, until there's a solution printed, presented to them, they're pretty much, you know, waiting on someone else to tell them what to do. So it was either we told them what to do or we continued to allow Shatterproof, Crop, and those other entities that had been previously working in Oklahoma, we continued to allow them to tell them what to do. Was it either or? Meaning were the legislators either listening to you or listening to organizations like Prop or is there another way where the legislators were influenced? I'm just trying to, for the audience, help them understand why there's so much misinformation about the opiate epidemic among legislators. Is it just that they've been fed so much wrong information or they're incentivized to think the wrong way? Both. And was it either or? Absolutely. Uh, there was two versions of this bill of Senate Bill 57 walking into the final committee hearing. Um, the lobbyist in Oklahoma, he's actually a really nice guy that usually works on this kind of stuff. He was under the impression it was one version of the bill. I was under the impression it was the version that myself and few others wrote. And we kind of both sat there in that meeting, wonder, you know, we both really thought it was our version of the bill that was going to leave that room. Wow. So now that lobbyist works for organizations like Chatterproof and Prop and other organizations that have kind of misaligned incentives and the money behind it. Uh, not directly. It's a very indirect um, way. He, he works for the doctors. He works for a lot of the medical associations and that he also has you know, other clients that, and some of them are very impacted by the opioid 
um, epidemic, one specifically a car dealer, major car dealer in Oklahoma. And he, I believe it was his son, had struggled with addiction. And he has definitely put a lot of his time and money into um, incentivizing this here in Oklahoma, pushing the, that narrative in Oklahoma. And I, it's so hard because I know that exists. I know that these people hurt because they see their family members hurting from addiction. So the last thing I ever wanted was to work against them. I actually had gone to all of them um, directly to the car dealer I was speaking of. He's on our medical board. Um, I went to him and I said, let's sit down and talk. We're not that far off. We just wow. need a caveat for patients. And he said, yeah, we'll set you up. We'll sit down and talk. That was, I believe, in 2019. Haven't heard back from him. Hmm. But that's interesting how you try to find common ground. And indeed, there really is a lot of common ground from those who have these strong anti-opioid views versus those that have a more balanced opioid view. There really isn't that much separating. It's often what now people use the term nuanced. Uh, were you able to capture the nuance? And was that part of your effectiveness? I would like to think so, because in a lot of what we did, we wanted to ensure that we never stepped on the toes of the funding for addiction, that one of the other parts of Senate Bill 57 actually has nothing to do with us. It gives the Oklahoma Opioid Overdose Fatality Review Board access to the PDMP reports so that they can do a better job of really figuring out where it's coming from and tracking things back to the beginning instead of just making guesses that it's all from prescribed opioids. Now they have access to it. We want them to see that. We want them to see if there is, if there really is a doctor that's prescribing to so many, you know, over prescribing or something, whatever that means, to a point where they're having all these patients die. But we also want them to see when that's not happening. So we want them to have this access. We tried to make it, like you said, as nuanced as possible to ensure we weren't touching any of theirs making sure they all had access and we supported that 100%, but also ensured that patients like us and the physicians could be protected. Yeah, it's certainly a difficult balance to find, but certainly something that you found in Oklahoma. And that's an amazing, amazing accomplishment. So flash forward to the present. SB 57 came into law in May of 2021. Have you noticed any changes? Has the patient-physician dynamic change as a result of this law? In some places, it has a lot. Um, I'd say maybe 30% of the physicians I've spoken to are excited about it or at least not know that it made a difference and have started slowly being willing to take on an extra patient here and there, raise some of these patients back up a little bit or they're definitely not more liberal, but maybe a little more um, attentive to, you know, attending to their patients a little better. The individualized needs. They've realized that having that hard cap wasn't suiting their practice or their patients and that they have protection to not have to feel like they have to do that. That's been the best part. Yeah, it's always 
the best for the patient when the decision-making is back in the physician's hands. But speaking of decisions, one thing that took place recently that has gathered national headlines is the Supreme Court of Oklahoma tossing out a landmark ruling in 2019 stating that Johnson & Johnson was liable under the public nuisance ordinances for the devastation caused by the opiate epidemic. Talk us through your own experience in seeing that verdict overturned. Did you see that as a victory or do you see that more as a natural progress to rectifying erroneous narratives in the opiate epidemic? Well, my first response is the fact that that was the only logical outcome and it didn't matter whether you were looking at the evidence they presented or you were looking at the use of the state nuisance law, neither one actually held up in court. If you listen to everything word for word or read the real statute, the law itself, there was no way it was ever going to be anything other than that. But I was thrilled to see it. You mentioned something incredibly important that I want you to touch upon a little bit more for the audience. Neither the evidence nor the use of law held up. So in healthcare legislation, there is the evidence underlying the law, and then there's the use or interpretation of the law, the two distinct things. Can you explain to us why they're distinct and the nuance between one versus the other? You'd be able to. Let's see. Of course, the evidence has to is supposed to have to support what the outcome is. And if we're specifically talking about the Oklahoma case, we it did not. Our attorney general and the attorney he hired to go with him, you know, into that battle, they admitted that technically Johnson and Johnson only had one percent of the case, you know, of the opioids in Oklahoma, and that they had not broke any laws. They did not break any laws. Yet they were still there trying to convince the judge that they broke ethics and that they should be held held accountable because they should have known something. It never made sense to me. And I listened to every word of that trial, some of it in person, some otherwise. But Talk to us about how prevalent this term is, should have known. You hear that in cases against physicians pharmacists, opioid manufacturers, where does this term come from, should have known? I really don't know, but I think that is something that if we were to flip that around in any other scenario, people would look at them and say, what are you talking about? I'm not a mind reader or a fortune teller. That's, it's just not acceptable. Yet the DEA itself keeps talking about the pharmacies, whoever, should have known or noticed the red flags, but nobody has defined the red flags or what they should have known. It's kind of just an all-encompassing term. They used to sound good? I don't know. So then the question becomes, why did the judges allow this in the first place? What do you think the judges were thinking? Was it just the political environment was so strong that the judges felt compelled to go along with it? Or was it just poor oversight on the judge's part? You know, I really don't know that I can speak to that. Of course, I have my own personal opinions 
based on where campaign contributions went and who did what, but I doubt, you know, no way of knowing. I really can't speak to how he came up with that. It seems like the past of the opioid epidemic and the erroneous policies were legitimately political in nature, more than medical. What does the future of opioid legislation look like? How do you see us actually making meaningful strides? Is it through politics or is it through the medicine? It's some of both because we really have to start with the politics. And when I say that, I mean going and trying to find the actual solutions, such as our comma or the individualized care paragraph, and presenting that with them and explaining to policymakers, we're not trying to undo the progress you've made on addiction, but you're seeing an overdose crisis continue and get worse. Therefore, find a way to claw back just what is needed to move forward. And once we've done that, it becomes the medical side because then all the doctors, not all, a lot of physicians and practitioners have either bought into the narrative or become so scared they don't, they just go along with it. And so there's going to become an entire need. There is already a need for continuing medical education that tells them, okay, this was wrong. This wasn't what we should have done. We need to find the middle ground. And then there's also going to be a whole subset of newer doctors and physicians, practitioners, that were told opioids are bad almost all and that pain needed to be treated you know, psychologically primarily or with antidepressants. So there's going to be a re-education of a lot of our newer practitioners that that was done without good evidence. Maybe we shouldn't have done that yet. We need to start looking for real evidence before we make these decisions instead of just throwing them out there. Yeah, and change like that can only come through leaders like you and the work that you've demonstrated. I don't mean this in a negative light, but I think it's important for the audience to know that you were able to accomplish all of this to the point where you're introducing laws into the state of Oklahoma with no formal education, really just your own perseverance and your own grit to succeed. What, what sort of intangibles did you have that kind of led you to persevere even in your weakest moments, even in the times when you had the greatest self-doubt, what was it about what you were doing or you internally that let you go on, let you continue? I'm not real sure other than the drive to be the best I could for my kids, but I'll tell you what, I've been told I am the most stubborn person anybody's <laughs> ever met including my parents, my grandparents, they say I will argue with a fence post even if I know they're not going to argue back. So maybe that was probably just a good setup for this. It's funny how stubbornness and persistence are so alike, yet when you contextualize them in different ways, it appears different to the public. It's a really an incredible job that you've done, Tamara. And I wanna leave with one question for the audience and kind of just putting everything together. For the advocate who's struggling to see success, for the advocate who 
does not have the relationship with legislators like you have, what are some advice, pieces of advice you can give to them that can help them be effective and reach the level of success that you've been able to reach? The first thing I can say is I did not have prior anything with these legislators up when I walked in that door. So I didn't have a prior relationship. I built it. I built it with each one of these, the medical board, any of And I did that just from continuous contact. Um, some of it by email, because there were so many days I had to do it by then. Phone calls and emails. And then when I could, I did it in person myself and had others. And there are so many in Oklahoma that saw we were starting to make a little bit of headway being heard and they stepped up and others from across the country, Arkansas and Texas. I had friends and you know colleagues that came over to Oklahoma to help because they saw we were starting to be heard, hoping that we could make change here and it would trickle into other states. So the best I can say is just start somewhere. Start calling your representative. Get to know them. They count on you. You're their votes. Without yeah. you, they don't get to be reelected. And everybody knows a dozen or more people. They can say, hey, I don't think you should vote for this guy. So you've got your own power just from being a constituent in a district. Use it. Call your legislators. Talk to them. Create that relationship. Yeah, that's such important advice that gets lost. The power of communication and of advocating for your own story to then help advocate for other stories is such an important part of making meaningful change. And you embody that perfectly. So with that, I want to thank you so much for what you've done for the country, for the pain community, and what you will do going forward. It's a Pleasure to see what you have done, and I'm looking forward to see what you will do in the future. Well, thank you very much. I have a good day now. Thank you. You too.